Are you amazed by the message of Christmas? This is Wayne Shepherd, the host here on Encounter God's Truth, and I'm so glad you're with us today because Dr. John Whitcomb is going to lead us through a passage of Scripture that is truly incredible, the ninth chapter of the prophet Isaiah. We're continuing to prepare our hearts and minds for the celebration of Christmas by means of a four-part study entitled Voices of the Christmas Prophets. If you're able, you'll want to turn to Isaiah 9 as Dr. Whitcomb comes to lead us in the next message in our series, An Amazing Voice. Here now is Dr. Whitcomb. Friends, I invite you to join me in, a, in an experience of discovery. Jesus Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago by virgin conception through Mary. But he's coming back again. He has been resurrected from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's waiting for something to happen before the whole world will become the footstool of his feet, just like Psalm 110 verse 1 predicted 3,000 years ago. But the great prophet Isaiah tells us something about this kingdom that he's going to establish when he comes. Listen carefully. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. There will no longer be gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. You remember those are the first parts of the kingdom of Israel that were taken captive by the Assyrians and from which they have not ever fully totally recovered. That was the realm of Galilee. Now watch what happens. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isn't that amazing, friends? That's where the Lord Jesus grew up, growing in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man for 30 years in Nazareth of Galilee. And the people who walk in darkness, says Isaiah, will see a great light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And what's going to happen? Immediately, Isaiah says, he's going to bring the kingdom to the world with Israel as the centerpiece of his magnificent plan for the world. Verse 3, thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness, they'll be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou shalt break the the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as in the battle of Midian. It'll be supernatural. It'll be sudden. It'll be spectacular, friends. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire. There will be a total destruction of all international opposition to Israel's right to the land in which they now live. As I've said before, friends, as I was a soldier in Germany in that Second World War and saw some of the results of the awful Holocaust where six million Jews were tortured and killed. I could never have believed that I would live to see, before my very eyes today, nearly six million Jews alive back in that promised land. They don't know what they're waiting for. They don't know what's coming. They don't believe the Bible as they really should. But we understand God's plan. And how is this going to happen? A kingdom starting in Israel, in Jerusalem? Listen to Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us. We've seen that in Isaiah chapter 7, 14, haven't we? Emmanuel. And a son will be given to us. Yes, he who was conceived in Mary's womb will be what? The son of God, the son of man. Two natures, one person. And what's going to happen to him, ultimately? The government will rest on his shoulders. 
his shoulders. Can you imagine one man ruling the whole world for a thousand years? And friends, look at his qualifications to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords in that thousand-year kingdom that's coming. Look, look at his name. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Oh, Wonderful, Pele. That's a supernatural name. You remember when uh, <clears throat> that angel appeared to the parents of Samson? They said, what's your name? So that when this wonderful prophecy you made of our son is fulfilled, we can come back and thank you for that. He said, why do you ask my name since it's wonderful? It's divine. It's mysterious. It's infinite. Yes, we all need a counselor, don't we, friend? But we only need one kind, just one kind. We need a kind that is identifiable with Jesus, the wonderful counselor. We need help. We need counsel. We need confrontation. We need discipline. We need illumination, instruction, and hope. He can, de- he can do it. The wonderful counselor, Jesus. Well, why is he so great? Listen to this. He's mighty God. My, El Gibor. He is infinite. He's divine. From eternity to eternity, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mighty God. But here's an amazing statement, too. He's eternal father. You say, eternal father, I thought he was the son. But you see, to Israel, in the Old Testament, in the days of Isaiah, the Israelites did not fully understand the identity and function and distinctives of the three persons of the Godhead, like we do today. And they viewed Jesus, who was the Malak Yahweh, he was the messenger of the Lord that always came to them. They viewed him as their father who cared for them, who watched over them. Thou art our father, Isaiah sixty-three sixteen, though Abraham does not know us. And Israel does not recognize us. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer from of old is thy name. So here the pre-incarnate Son was like a father to Israel. He was the one that watched over them, protected them, confronted them from time to time through all those centuries, as we know from Old Testament history. Yes, eternal Father. But what else is he? Prince of Peace. Oh, friends, do you want peace on this earth? Do you want an end of hostility, destruction, death, tragedies? Get to know who the Prince of Peace is. Jesus, the Savior of the world and the coming King of Kings. What kind of a government is he going to bring? It says in verse 7, there'll be no end of the increase of his government or of peace. It's endless. I mean, it'll go on forever and ever, friends, and the thousand-year kingdom is merely an introductory phase of the eternal state. When he takes over the world at Armageddon, according to Revelation 19, never again does Satan rule the world. He'll be released for a brief season at the end of the kingdom. Yes, we know that from Revelation 20. But it's very brief. It's to give people a final choice, and then the whole world is transformed into a new earth wherein dwells righteousness forever. The great white throne judgment produces Final division of mankind, the righteous, the wicked, believers, unbelievers, forever and ever, in heaven and hell. Yes, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. You remember, this is a Davidic kingship now, established by God's Davidic covenant to David 3,000 years ago, and Jesus was a physical descendant through Mary of one of the sons of David. Now, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness for then on and forevermore. How can this happen? Answer, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Not the United Nations, not the United States, 
no country or combination of countries today can possibly accomplish this. We see this more and more today, don't we, everywhere, friends. The desperate frustration of nations to have a ruler that can rule righteously and lovingly, graciously, wisely. Well, you know, Isaiah's already talked about what that kingdom will be like. You remember back in Isaiah chapter 2? It'll come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Jerusalem's temple, will be established as the chief of the mountains of all the kingdoms and will be raised above the hills, above the little kingdoms, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What an amazing prediction. What are we going to get when we get to the house of Jacob? Listen to this. We're back in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3 now. Listen carefully. That he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the, the, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He'll render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. I say, Lord, may that kingdom come. And, you know, Jesus told us to pray about that, didn't he? He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But, friends, we all have this burning question in our mind and heart. How can this kingdom come to this world? Not by human maneuvering, manipulating no, no, listen carefully now. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God and God alone can bring in such a kingdom. You know, you go down after Isaiah a couple hundred years, and the great prophet Zechariah put it even stronger. The angel that talked with him said, Proclaim this, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house, that's, my, that's the temple in Jerusalem, friends. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. It's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be repopulated. It's going to be reestablished. You say, how can this happen? Listen again now, Zechariah one seventeen. again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. You know, it doesn't matter what the United Nations or any league of countries or kings or potentates might say or think. They have no control over the world. God does, and he's going to accomplish it. Now, we, we saw a little glimpse of that prospect, didn't we, in Zechariah chapter 1. Listen to Zechariah chapter 8. My, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion, that's Jerusalem. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. I'm coming to that city, not to New York, not to London, not to... Shanghai, listen, to Jerusalem. What's going to happen? Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. That mountain means a kingdom. The holy kingdom will be centered in Jerusalem. Really? What will it be like in that city? 
during the kingdom age. Thus says the Lord of hosts, we're in Zechariah 8.4 now, All men and all women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? Declares the Lord. Talk about being difficult. I'm sure the people of Israel today are on the verge of desperation. How can they have security? How can they have recognition, appreciation, prosperity, security? How can they have it? God says, I can handle it. I can handle it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. That would include America, I believe, friends. All over the world, he's going to bring them back. Really? Yes, verse 8, I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. You see, Israel has to be transformed spiritually to qualify to be the central kingdom of the thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth. And uh, you remember Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. They have to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, and you know that God will send two witnesses, one of them Elijah, who will in the first part of the 70th week of Daniel, that 70th week transition period between the departure of the church and the establishment of the kingdom. And during that time, all Israel will believe and be saved and be prepared by God to rule the world for a thousand years. Now, you say, well, wait a minute here. There's something missing. Where's the church? That's fascinating, friends. The church is totally missing in the Old Testament. Really? Over and over, the New Testament says the church is a mystery, something hidden from ages past but finally revealed. Nobody knew anything about a church because when Israel rejected Messiah, that tree of divine blessing with the roots in the Abrahamic covenant was broken off, the branches broken off, and strange foreign branches, that's Gentiles like us, grafted into that tree of blessing on that root of Abrahamic covenant promise. And now we, the church, for the last 2,000 years, Jew and Gentile believing in Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, baptized as we've seen by spirit baptism, are the body and bride of Christ. But when the body and bride of Christ have been completed, every believer that will ever again be a part of the church will have been saved and redeemed and taken away at the rapture. Then and then only will God again deal exclusively through Israel to set up sacrificial systems that will not save people but will remind them, visual aids, spectacular visual aids again, of the infinite price Jesus paid with his blood upon that cross. Now, here's how, how the Apostle Paul deals with this. After telling us about the future of Israel, remember in Romans 11, he says in his final chapter, Romans 16, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, mysterion, now watch that word, something spectacular that's never been known before, but now at last revealed, the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Isaiah didn't know about it. Zechariah didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it. And now watch. But now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. And now, friends, the Apostle Paul, who had the gift of prophecy, 
speaks even more clearly about the uniqueness of the church in Ephesians chapter 3. Listen carefully. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which has been given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, mysterion, you remember from Romans 16, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now here we go. Are you ready? Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. No Jew, no Israelite, not even Abraham, Moses, Isaiah knew anything about this. Watch this secret now finally unveiled, revealed. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And of course, Paul was not an apostle. He was a prophet. Direct revelation from God through Paul to be part of the holy scriptures. And what is this now? What is this revelation? Are you ready? Ephesians 3, 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Amazing. You mean a Gentile without becoming a Jew can be a part of God's total program today in this age? Yes, that's the uniqueness of the church, of which I was made a, a minister, says Paul, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring the light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And I say, now, now Lord, help me to understand this. God is going to bring a kingdom to this earth in which Israel will be regenerated, established, honored, protected, and specially blessed to be a what? An instrument through which God will reach all the Gentile nations of the world to instruct them, to teach them, to win them to a saving faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Where will the church be? What will we be doing? We'll be ruling over the world as kings and priests under Christ, according to Revelation chapter 20. Just as angels today rule over the world and watch over righteous angels, watch over and protect God's people, they're amazed at how we worship Jesus and how we can be saved. Angels can't be saved. People can be, must be, by believing in Jesus. Now, friends, when that kingdom comes and Israel becomes the center of the nations, the church will have a glorious function ruling over the nations, over the world, just like angels do today, as kings under Christ, the Davidic king, as priests under Christ, the Melchizedekian high priest, for a thousand years. What a wonderful destiny for the body and bride of Christ. And as you remember now back from Isaiah, that amazing prophecy in chapter 9, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And I say thank you, Lord, for helping me to see that you have a plan through Jesus Christ the virgin-conceived Son of God, Son of Mary, Son of Man, is our perfect Redeemer, the go-between, the one who intercedes for us to the Father, represents us with His glorified body in the presence of God the Father, the one who will come at any moment now, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up 
in clouds, clouds of glory, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Friend, are you ready for this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace? Are you ready to see Jesus Christ? He's coming, perhaps, this very moment. Are you ready to meet him and be like him forever when you see him face to face in all his glory? God bless you. That was Dr. John Whitcomb helping us prepare to celebrate the coming of Christ with a brand new series here on Encounter God's Truth. It's called Voices of the Christmas Prophets. You can hear any of these messages again on our webpage at sermonaudio.com forward slash Whitcomb. We also encourage you to visit us at whitcombministries.org. Well, Dr. Whitcomb, today's message comes from such a precious and powerful section of Holy Scripture in Isaiah chapter 9. As we've discussed it today, an important question comes to mind. I'm wondering, can you go into more detail about the darkness that prevailed in the land of Israel before the first coming of Christ and how Jesus enlightened that darkness? Wayne, why was it that the land of Israel was in such deep darkness, spiritually speaking, of course, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago? That's what Isaiah the prophet predicted, wasn't it? In Isaiah 9, he said, There will be no longer gloom for her who was in anguish, In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now here's the statement. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. It's amazing to see how dark, spiritually speaking, the land was when Jesus, the light of the world, came 2,000 years ago. This, of course, was predicted by Daniel the exact time when he'd arrive, chronologically speaking. But the darkness was so deep that they even rejected and crucified the light of the world. What was going on in Israel at that time? Well, of course, we're told in Galatians that Jesus came in the fullness of time. He's never too late, never too early. I believe that means he came at the time of spiritual pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency, and therefore spiritual darkness, the like of, their, of which there had never been before. And that made the light more conspicuous. And so John, the Gospel of John, says that this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, neither would they come to the light lest their deeds should be reproved. Now, of course, Corinthians tells us, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I say, Lord, help us to appreciate how bright that light of Jesus is at this Christmas time. How dark our darkness is when we suppress, reject, ignore, deny that light. It's true need, necessity, ultimate urgency of coming to that light of God. At that time in Israel, dear friends, Herod the Great was the king. He was a monster of iniquity, pride, self-sufficiency, arrogance. He built that temple. I should say he enlarged the second temple to a magnificent structure, not because he believed and trusted in God, not because he was seeking the light, but in order for political reasons to gain favor with the Jews. And the Jews trusted in him amazingly. They just were abounding in thankfulness for that beautiful temple. But when the light of the world came into the temple, they didn't recognize him for who he was. And he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. How corrupt the nation was. Self-sufficient, proud, arrogant, comparatively wealthy, 
Uh, and I, I say, Lord, is that possibly true of our land today? Uh, are you going to deal with us according to what we deserve, that we might be shocked and repentant of our evil thoughts, that we may come to the light of the world who is Jesus at this Christmas time? Help us to realize that the deeper darkness makes the light of Jesus even more conspicuous. And I pray, Lord, help me to be a light reflector that I can tell people how great Jesus himself really, really is, that I might reflect something of his glory into someone else's deep darkness and need. That's the whole purpose, isn't it, friends, of celebrating Christmas or celebrating every Sunday morning the resurrection of Jesus, celebrating every hour of every day his love for us that sent him to the cross to pay in full the penalty of the sin that we could never pay for. May our darkness be the surrounding circumstance, the occasion for that light to shine into us that we may see him as he really, really is the light of the world. Thank you, Dr. Whitcomb. As we move closer to Christmas Day, Whitcomb Ministries invite you to follow our Countdown to Christmas at sermonaudio.com forward slash Whitcomb where there's so much more material for you to consider and share with your loved ones at this important time of year. You'll also want to check out facebook.com forward slash Whitcomb Ministries for even more from Dr. Whitcomb on the prophecies and fulfillment surrounding Christmas. There you can find some new devotions he's written to supplement this teaching series called God's Whispers of Christmas. I'm Wayne Shepherd, reminding you that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. I hope your preparations for Christmas are especially meaningful this year. If that is your desire, then be sure to tune in next week when we'll once again consider the voices of the Christmas prophets here on Encounter God's Truth.